Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Buffalo What's Next is on summer break and will return with new content shortly. As we take this break, please continue to tune in to WBFO Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. and 9 p.m. for producers' picks of some of our favorite episodes of Buffalo What's Next. How can we afford not to talk about race? About education. About segregation. About humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On today's episode of Buffalo What's Next, Summertime Producers Picks, we look back at three segments from last year. First, we look back at a segment from September 21st, where Jay Moran speaks with Stan Martin from CAI Global and Ebony White from Buffalo Health Equity Center. Then, Thomas O'Neill White speaks with Canna House President and Founder Reggie Keefe from November 9th. And we close out with Jay Moran speaking with filmmaker Terry Jones from September 1st. First, Jay Moran with Stan Martin and Ebony White. What are some of the... the, the top issues when we talk about health inequities in our community? So for us, uh, our focus has been around housing, uh, food and nutrition uh, options. Also, um, COVID, you know, once that that has been on our main uh, focus for many years now. And also the healthcare delivery system. So we, we, we look at a lot of those things and overall the social determinants of health. Um, Everything that impacts you from where you work, where you play, uh, if you don't have the option, the, the options to work or where you get your education. So we're looking at everything holistically, everything that impacts someone of having what we would call a high quality, right? High quality life and access. And there's some real stark numbers available when it comes to if you live in some zip codes in the city of Buffalo, mm-hmm. just can you go through uh, just to, when it comes to mortality? the difference that we see? The differences are those who live in particular zip codes. So if I was to say 14215, 14208, 14211, 14212, just to name a few, you're likely to develop some of these chronic diseases and other comorbidities uh, and live less than your counterparts that live in different zip codes by like 10 plus years. That's stark that you can see in data and look at the trends of that something is saying because I live in a particular place, I have lack of access to particular things that are important to a a quality of life that I possibly my life will end uh, much sooner than someone that lives in a different zip code. And Stan, you were originally from Buffalo. You've come back to uh, open this office for CAI. You've been here for a couple of years now. So talk about what you've learned since you've come back. Uh, Yes, great, great question. One of the things that I learned since I came back, and I actually knew before I left, (laughs) you know, (laughs) hasn't changed that much. Hasn't changed that much. But uh, in all seriousness, like Buffalo is strong. You know, oftentimes, you know, we don't hear uh, about the great things that are happening, you know, in our city. And in, in terms of uh, uh, healthcare, and in terms of healthcare services, you know, we oftentimes, you know, have have focused on, you know, um, you know, a narrative that blames and shames the community, you know. And one of the things that we're very, very um, vested in is changing that narrative and amplifying the youth voices, and as we like to say, you know, promoting what's strong and not what's wrong. So building on the assets, building on relationships. 
you know, with the faith community, building relationships, you know, with, um, with community residents who have that lived experience, who in some cases may have been left um, out of the conversation or didn't have a seat at the table or even a voice at the table. So what CAI and, and REACH does, REACH is a project of CAI, what we do is really amplify those voices so that the people are a part of the solution and not seen as a part of the problem. That's interesting. I, that, that term that you use, blame and shame, people really feel it, it, that's, that's, a, that's a view inside these, these communities that they're being blamed for the problems that have, they have to endure? Correct. That's, I mean, can you expand on what, uh, what, what they're seeing and what they're so hearing the, about the, that? Uh, the simplest way is someone said if they wanted more, they would do this or do that. So that's creating some level of shame for our community members. But when if you don't have that as an option for you, so part of trauma, right, being trauma is eliminating choice. Many times our community lacks choice in options and say uh, in these spaces. So that's where it becomes this blame and this shame in that I have to live and be in the condition that I'm in always. And that's why it's so important and critical uh, what uh, CAI is doing, the Buffalo Center for Health Equity and others in this space to give choice, to say that you are not the brain. This is infrastructure uh, that was created systematically uh, that impacts you and you're not the cause, but you definitely will be a part of the solution to it and that you play a major part in versus uh, someone else doing it for you but that we have what we need uh, to do it for ourselves what about that then so how do we make that change it's uh, this is something that's generations in making mm -hmm. here in Buffalo right and probably in a lot of other cities across uh, the United States as well but you're you're talking about trying to ch change that narrative what are some of the steps that you've seen that can can help with that. Number one is asking the community. And we believe that the community, you know, has the answer. You know, so uh, when you when you're talking about addressing, uh, for example, uh, food security, or when you when you're talking about addressing, you, you know, um, the social determinants of health, instead of coming in with the program and saying we're going to do this for you, you know, you need to come alongside and stand shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip. You know, uh, with individuals of that community and with residents, so that you can really see, you know, the issues through their through their lens, and not not from you know a, uh, from a position of well, I'm I'm from afar, or I sit high and I look down below, you know. So therefore, that is a different perspective. So trust sounds like like this is a this, this is a big issue here, right? I mean, that yes. there just is a lack of trust with what the general medical healthcare System? Yes, yes, yes. Um, lack of trust that they're heard, you know, often or, or even seen. Uh, do you really see me when I come in that room? I've, I've spent extensive amounts of time talking with community members about that they are a consumer of a service, right? And you need to be seen, you need to be heard, and there's a way. And then talking to healthcare providers saying, did you hear this person uh, when they, they shared these symptoms or did you ignore them? And often, sometimes people leave feeling ignored in many of these spaces. Um, so that's why building trust and just being as, uh, just being 
being a people of humility, right? Being able to connect just as humankind is really about having those conversations. If we have a disagreement, hey, I didn't like it, that doesn't mean they need to leave. You have to have some restorative practices, right? And I think we've started some of those restorative practices and just with the conversations. Yes, and if I could just lean in a little bit more on that, in terms of having those conversations, it's very important that we're uh, um, providing access with those providers and healthcare providers and uh, those interviewers, let me say, you know, are from the community or look like others from that community. Okay. You know, uh, you may have heard the phrase, you know, the messenger is just as important know as a message so one of the things that we try to do uh, at reach Buffalo is to really amplify the voices of the residents and also of physicians and providers of color you know so that they are you know um, 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 having conversations when I say they the community is having conversations with someone who looks like them or someone who have a similar experience a shared experience so that helps to build that trust and rapport you know with um, with the community uh, let me uh, follow up with the question because I think we've heard about this before, but just to, to, to clarify, there is a, a shortage of people of color, though, who are providers of health care. Is that, is that the case here? That is the case. And, of course, recently uh, a tragedy involved uh, Dr. Daniels and his two daughters, uh, of course, um, that took away a, a key member of the community in that regard, right? Yes, a, a champion at the university in, in mentorship and in supporting uh, African Americans uh, in getting into health care uh, and being physicians. So that, that's hard because um, we don't have that and you want to see that. You want to be able to see someone that looks like you, uh, can communicate with you and understands your culture, right? Um, in, in that, that was a hard, that's, that, that's still a very hard space uh, for us, but we believe that he's planted so many seeds in our community and young people and youth that they will, you know, they will begin, we will start to see to fruition um, our, our uh, leading uh, future doctors, uh, whether it's in pediatrics, whether it's in genetics, whether it's in all of the spaces and um, come to fruition because he did such great work. Let's, let's talk about this for, for just a moment. You know, the, the um, Health Disparities Task Force has been in, uh, together for, for some time. Uh, your office, Stan, has been here for, for three years. Is there more that we still need to know that before, like, like you said, leveling the playing surface, finding these solutions, are we still in that gathering phase of, of trying to really understand the problem? Is there more that needs to be dug into? I think it is always more, but I will say we have not just been gathering without solutions, right? So uh, the task force uh, has been together well over five years now, and it was crucial. We didn't know that when we were coming together in a collaborative approach to address so many things that it would be critical that we were already we had some legs right so when COVID came we had some legs right. we had some relationships we had had the conversations the hired talks we we had to get to the place where say hey this is what I'm good at this is where 
your strong suit, and we came together to really support and, and, and address COVID in our very own community, uh, even with the food and the, the PPE and the access and the vaccinations and all of those things. So we were ahead, if you will. Uh, we didn't know we were going to be ahead <laughs> in COVID. Right, right, right. We just knew we needed to get together because we could not do it siloed apart. Uh, and the, the, the impact that it had when we did it apart, we, we kept missing. Um, but it is always a conversation when you're looking at systems, right? Uh, you have to change full-fledged systems. You know, you do a little repair here and then something else happens on this side and it all impacts each other so we have been doing that systematic change definitely by even starting with conversations and building trust Mm -hmm. and just a um, one point of clarification CAI we actually started a program here in the city of Buffalo um, in 2015 called Hope Buffalo uh, stands for Health, Opportunity, Prevention and Education and what the community said at the very onset you know, of our inceptions that if we're going to address, you know, the root causes of poverty, you know, we got to address the social determined health, you know, in, in this community. So, you know, and as a result of that great work, you know, we've seen this ripple effect in terms of we are able to uh, identify and bring in additional resources, you know, to not only address teen pregnancy, but also chronic disease prevention. And now, uh, as Evan was speaking to, also was uh, like COVID increasing education awareness about uh, COVID vaccination. So, so I, like you said, we've got to listen to the members of the community. They're going to give the answers when it comes to what is needed. On the other side of the coin, though, the providers, the, those systems where there is health, right, there are people who are accessing health care in Erie County in different towns and whatever the case may be, perhaps maybe um, they might have a, a better um, uh, means uh, to to access these things. But at the same time, right, I mean, is it doctor groups? Is it hospitals, uh, health insurance companies? What's missing? I mean, are, we, are, the, the, are, are there gaps being allowed to exist here that still, like you said, conversations are, are ongoing? Can you help me kind of understand that a little bit more better so what i will say is um the task force is comprised of all of those sectors that you mentioned but there are still silos so then you may have an insurance company uh in in your space but they still speak their language right so this is about translation language right that's a tough language and it's always about translation so we have to translate what we need i do believe uh that we all want our communities healthier what does that look like right so someone is focusing more on the financial standpoint of it someone else is looking at hey what is missing uh and health wise do we need another clinic uh more physicians to meet the need and the demand of our community but it has to be it has to be very consistent and ongoing right and if you look at all of the policies and again when you start looking at the infrastructure of it um you start to see where that will impact that so we have to have conversations with groups that really weren't in our group before right so an insurance provider now might need to talk to a not-for-profit to say well when i develop this plan how would this policy impact you when I put this rule into play. So I think we're starting to do it a little more um, um, than we did previously, but 
uh, previous privy to that during disrupt time that put all of those places together and then as just a when it's it's time period we see the value of putting all of these organizations together um, and them working collectively but seeing how all of our policies may impact in a negative way uh, the other uh, organizations, whether it's in those social sectors too. But we're starting to have more conversations and more action uh, where mental health is now looking at social determinants of health versus I'm just looking at mental health. You can't look at people just singularly, you know. You have to be able to see in the purview all of the things that will impact you in social things impact us all you can't get away from them that was jay moran with stan martin and ebony white next thomas o'neill white with canada house president and founder reggie keith what got you into wanting to create a, a marijuana business a marijuana related business yeah man honestly um i've been a consumer since i was young right 13 14 i was introduced to the plant and so i've always had a passion for it right and so uh that passion um, kind of paired with my skill set and my experiences really kind of pushed me to the direction of like, hey, um, I don't want to work for anybody. You know, uh, what can I do that I love um, and uh, how can I use the skills that I've already gathered, kind of my work history. And so paired all those things together, man, and it was just a perfect storm for, you know, a cannabis entrepreneur. As we get closer and closer to legalized sales of recreational marijuana has there any has there been any clarity from the state on how this is all going to work what do you know yeah man i mean shout out to the ocm uh chris alexander uh the whole staff um they had a big workload ahead of them um and as a legacy um you know representer uh myself i would say that uh at first it was rocky right there was some real uh lack of transparency lack of clarity coming from the ocm um, but they've done a, a great job uh, as of recent as to just reaching out, creating lines of communication, um, and licensing are starting to come out. Right, I do know that there's some things coming down the pipeline that will really allow people to, <clears throat> excuse me, start to set a tone for you know their path for license, um, you know, life in the cannabis space here in New York. Um, and it's happening. That's that's what I can tell you. It's happening. Yeah, for folks who don't know, what is the the OCM? The OCM is the Office of Cannabis Management. It is the uh, organization responsible for handling cannabis here in New York State um, as it relates to uh, legislation, regulation, um, excuse me, uh, and the rollout of those rules. And so, uh, yeah, they are putting together, you know, rules and regs for each license category. Uh, There's upward of like uh, eight to ten license categories. And so uh, the first part of the supply chain has been rolled out which is growers and processors. Uh, there's just been the first 150 retail locations introduced. Um, I don't think they've identified everybody as of yet, but mm-hmm. they've taken those applications um, and they're processing that now. Um, and so right now you'll have the first you know, open retail locations, um, hopefully by the end of the year, but probably you know first quarter of next year. So yeah. You mentioned that you were a legacy representer. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Um, so legacy is what they've deemed representing uh, a group representing those who were operating in the in the cannabis space before legislation passed, right? So those who were, um, you know, I don't like to use the black market or anything like that, yeah. but you know, we made a successful um, go of 
cannabis operations so much so that the you know the the state gave up and they said (laughs) you know what we need in on that and so um i think this this very industry stands on the shoulders of of legacy operators expungement of uh marijuana related crimes how does that work if i if i've got a possession charge does the state of new york immediately strike that off my record or do i gotta jump through a few hoops uh first yeah so it's my understanding i believe there was some auto expungement originally when the law passed so i'm not exactly sure of what those crimes consisted of mm-hmm. um but yes there is a process that if you weren't in like auto expunged there uh you can go through right there's uh expungement clinics that are held throughout the state on a regular basis you can go to the uh ocm's website which i believe is office of cannabis management dot gov excuse me if i miss spoke that but yeah they usually have that information available and um yes yeah, it's, it's not as you know strenuous as one would imagine and it's definitely worth you know going through the things that they're asking to get that expunged but yeah um a very very important part of you know seeing that cannabis industry exist is making sure that people that got taken away from their families and homes that were broken up are you know those things are rectified talk to me about uh for those who who are not in the know, what is Canna House? What do you get? What do you guys do over there? Yeah, man. So we um, at our origin uh, is a cannabis centric social club, but we've really evolved into a uh, consumer resource center of sorts, right? So we focus on um, we started with activity based events, so creating dope spaces and safe spaces for people to consume. Right. We also provide product awareness, whether that's through reviews or safe sourcing. You know, we want to make sure that people know how to get safe and um, good quality products. Uh, but education and advocacy, you know, those are our four pillars. That's what we stand on, making sure that the community uh, knowledge is ele- elevated because that allows for, you know, the easy integration for these new businesses into the community. Right. You can't just imagine you're going to pop up your multi-million dollar company next door to somebody who absolutely doesn't understand what you're doing uh-huh. right so it's important to educate them and get them on board whether they are investors or just going to be your next door neighbor right and then advocacy you know um, advocating for um, the consumer you know oftentimes the advocacy stops at the purchase once you purchase and you're you know um, have the product or the plant in your hand um, you're kind of left to your own you know um free will to kind of find your way around and there uh, is an important opportunity and void in the market to make sure that people have um, a safe space to go to and we want to advocate for that um, to be um, readily available in most communities yeah and, and that's why you have uh, the dope spaces because um, you know not everyone can take their product home and you know have a couple tokes and listen to jazz records right that's a fact that's a fact man right some people that might be in federal federally funded housing um you just might have a landlord who just doesn't isn't okay with that right you just might be in a position where you can't go home and consume and you need a space that you can do that and 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 comfort and um allows you to still uh, stay true to who you are and so yeah we we definitely want to make sure we're creating that i was uh i was taking a look at a uh, another interview that you did, and you mentioned the term legal consumership. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, consuming as a you know as a pastime of the black community, we've we've oftentimes just uh, been spenders, 
right? Mm-hmm. And so um, what I really was referring to there is kind of the legal consumership of cannabis. But in general, uh, we really want to talk about the maturation in, uh, of consuming and educated consuming, right? And I think from a place of like maybe just buying your products out in the street, you kind of don't necessarily have a say-so outside of saying, hey, man, I don't really like this product. You know, next time I come back, give me something better. Yeah. Right? But, you know, in legal consumership, you have the ability to leverage your purchase power, right? And so if you telling somebody, hey, I'm willing to come here and spend my money at your space, as a community, if we come together, we can then demand that that, that retail or that location then give us something in return other than just a product, right? If you're going to be in my community, this is what I'm expecting you to reinvest. You know, this is how I'm expecting you to impact the community around you, right? And those things are, um, I think, a big part of like a mature legal consumer, um, you know, yeah. lifestyle. So what, what would that look like then? You know, you've got a, if you've got someone who is not of the community that has a business, a, a power-related business within that community, what does that give back to the community? What might that look like? Yeah, I think it is uh, dependent on the community itself, and I think it's important that you go and poll and ask that community what is it that they need, right? Oftentimes people go into communities thinking that they have this plan and they're going to come in and this is how they're going to help these folks. And mm-hmm. if those folks don't need that help, then that can be you know, taking a totally different way. And so it's important for you to go ask, hey, what do I, what can I do for you here, right? I'm instead gonna, of dictating. Instead of dictating and say, hey, this is what I got. I'm yeah. give you these crumbs or I'm going to give you whatever we've thought about in this room with these, you know, no offense, usually like five white male guys are in a room putting together this plan. And it is totally void of perspective. And that perspective usually leaves like a tone deaf approach to, you know, solving some of that community assistance. Yeah, I, I want to actually get back to those uh, those five white guys in a little <laughs> bit. But uh, um, in your position, do you talk regularly with people of color who are in this business, uh, look or looking to get a foothold uh, in this brand new industry? What do you discuss with them if you do? Yeah, um, a big part of uh, our approach to um, filling this void in the spaces we are a membership based club. Right, and so we have a ton of um, peer-to-peer and member-to kind of executive mentor conversations, where it is exactly that. Right, we have a volunteer program where we come and they can help us set up. But in that time, they're just picking our brains, right, gathering information about you know just understanding the industry. Right, a big part of it is just laying a solid foundation of understanding the plant. Uh, so many misconceptions out there, um, so many things that we've gotten used to, terms we've been getting used to using that are just outdated or antiquated, and we really need to update everybody, right? So it's like a refresher most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, and then, you know, specifically, if there's somebody with experience who's like, yo, man, I want to get into this thing. I've been doing this already, right? We really help navigate, you know, the approach to uh, licensing. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we've gathered a, quite a few resources, and we try to do our best to leverage those resources for not just our benefit, but for some of those folks that we're trying to mentor. So do you consider yourself a mentor then? Um, loosely, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the responsibility, the role that I've kind of matured into is, um, yeah, if you got it, man, it's, un- it's unfair to, it's to, to hold on to it for yourself. What's it like moving into these spaces, uh, moving in these spaces uh, with with other people of color who who have the same vision as you i mean it's so refreshing right i've um you know assessed my skill sets over time and they've really uh lended themselves 
perfectly for this industry. And I feel like that's a natural thing for most people of color that I see, right, is this fits us. It allows us to be our full selves, right? Um, I can walk in as me. I don't have to put on a suit and tie when I'm in meetings, right? Um, I can even go in smelling like weed. Right, it's not even a bad thing, right? And so those things, I feel like, like this booth, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so you know what I mean. I yep. think that's that's um, that's that's um, refreshing to be able to be your authentic self. And then um, I'm I'm really really impressed by, um, you know, how serious we're taking ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right, people are getting over here, and it's not about just hey a handout. We're like you know we're running a serious business over here, and we want to be taken serious. And um, that that is really, really uh, uh, invigorating and is encouraging. And it keeps me going, honestly, uh, for real. Is there a fear amongst you or the people you congregate with um, that the licenses to sell and grow maybe in large quantities will eventually or are already being gobbled up by the rich white guys. 1,000%, right? The industry's already 92% owned by, you know, white-owned companies, right? And that's, it's a sad story because this is a baby. It's an infant. There's no reason why it should be, it's, it's, it should grow up and have to turn into a white-dominated industry, right? We can be intentional about changing that. And big shout-out to the majority leader of Crystal People Stokes. I will always, you know, say her name in the highest regard because, Nobody's intentionally created legislation to kind of combat that. Absolutely. Right? You know, She's a real trailblazer. Real trailblazer, man. Uh, the godmother is what I affectionately call her. <laughs> um, you know, but she she made sure that the bill represented 50% um, representation of social equity applicants, right? Meaning, you know, folks affected by the war on drugs here, you know, our community, um, you know, veterans, women, um, and distressed farmers. Right. And so uh, of that group, we fit in a, a few of those categories. And it, that's important because if 50 percent of this industry looks like us, it can truly change our trajectory in our like our socioeconomic you know, um, status here in the country. So you're listening to Buffalo. What's next? Thomas O'Neill White here talking about the cannabis business with Canna House president and founder Reggie Keith. As I was uh, talking to you about before, I was I was keeping your breaking barriers podcast with the, that you were on uh, shout out to Tommy McClam and Daniel Roberts. This is your fourth warning to come on this podcast. Please, <laughs> I'm a, please I'm come a, on. I'm going to send them a text for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, but on that podcast, Oh, also shout out to uh, Dorian Withrow who was on last week. You were talking about creativity and having a creative mind. That's important to you. Mm-hmm. So important, man. I, I think we all, uh, our purpose here is to be creative. And oftentimes our life just creates restraints and constraints. And, you know, we kind of box ourselves in. Um, but our full selves is, um, you know, at the core built on creativity. And so um, that leads me, man. Creativity, I think, and innovation is what keeps the world going, right? It's new stuff. You know, and all that stuff has come an idea that was birthed into some work ethic and then, you know, spawned into an actual um, executioned, you know, plan. And then we see that out in, in, in reality. But it all started with some kind of creative thought. 
And so, yeah, creativity, I think, is um, essential to, you know, any good idea. How do you how do you put that into what you do with Canna House? Yeah. So our approach was always like, all right, how can we stand out? You know, how can we be in this space? But how can we create something that's not there? Uh, how can we, you know, see these voids and create something that is going to be special? Right. And so, um, again, using my experience, my parents always do these cool little shindigs at the house. And so I knew how to get people together. I knew how to, like, get us and gather us and put us under the guise of something like a good time. And so from that, it was just like, all right, how creative can we get? You know, what can we do to make people feel like, oh, man, I've never experienced this before. Right. I can consume at the house with my friends. I can consume in the garage. I can ride around the smoke. I don't mm-hmm. have to go, you know, spend money to go sit in this event. Um unless I'm getting something I wouldn't get anywhere else. And so that creativity is, um, yeah, like I said, essential to, to Canada House's, you know, existence. Can you give me an example of, like, a uh, something you would throw, like a party, a shindig? Yeah, man. Uh, so we're all about activity-based events. That's our niche, right? So it's puff and painting, uh-huh. right? It's cooking with cannabis. It's murder mysteries, um, kickball, you know, games, right? It's all about taking the consumption and then pairing that with something cool to to do, right? And so then that gives you those creative juices flowing through consuming, and then we find a way to exercise your mind or to expand it. And um, yeah, talk to me about this murder mystery. What was that all <laughs> yeah, about? Yeah, murder mystery was dope, man. We actually did it downtown Buffalo. Um, it, it it was uh, our first approach at it. But it really was a star. And a lot of people got into, um, like, really coming to, like, rehearsals, sort of say. Right? We did, like, these Zoom uh, calls where people can kind of, like, learn their character and just understand what they were responsible for doing. And then we get there, you know, we give them a kind of a script to follow, a flow. Um, and then the goal is to find out who done it. I actually died in the first murder mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to my brother, Val Shine. He's um, uh, also our uh, head of marketing um and so he was kind of like uh the, the other role that found me and like he made a scene of it and they had to like solve my murder okay so, yeah. so it was like a play then yeah i mean sort of it was like a everybody's involved in kind of this like role play story yeah right? and it's like you got a character and then the goal is to actually find out who done it right like a clue scenario um, and so the story was I was like a nightclub owner. I was throwing like this big event in my penthouse and um, I wind up, you know, getting killed. And so <laughs> people had to like dig through some clues that we had left throughout the night and, uh, you know, piecing things together. And um, it wound up being a really dope time. Again, just, exp- you know, using your mind once it's expanded. Yeah. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you about uh, the way creativity comes out in like food yeah 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 talk a little bit about that i heard heard the lemonade's bomb yeah man shout out dirty lemonade dirty products um uh we also have a sauce line now urban jane's secret sauces but yeah man so we've we've always kind of tried to like again be on the cusp of like introducing the community to new things right and so 
Um, one of the things we found along our path of like consuming, I grew up in the era of like smoking, right? Just rolling mm-hmm. up six, seven blunts, yep. we're playing the game, we smoke all day, we just get as high as possible. And which is cool, right? But as I matured, I really like to start understanding like there's ailments I wanted to solve, whether that's a topical that I wanted to rub on my body, or if, you know, it's like, hey, I can't smoke in this place, so I need to vape. So I started to develop like a diet, like a diversified diet of like, consuming options okay okay, i don't have to just smoke a blunt yeah right and so then from there it was like all right well you know let's use butters and let's figure out how to cook stuff and so my brother is actually a a self-trained chef wow Um, and so um just partnering stuff together we 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 always did this as kids you know what i mean like he's been cooking i've been tasting his food forever and i was like this mixologist like i always would like mix a bunch of juices and drinks and stuff like that and so you know as we mature we really started to take that perspective and go hey we got some skills you know and then we started doing these events and we were like all right well we want to provide something outside of just the um Puff and paint or the murder mystery. You know, we want to serve people things. Let's infuse the food. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we're like, well, you know, um, the social, we learned that, of course, social life is about like uh, the drinks. You know, you go out on the scene, you go to the bar, right, right, to get a drink. And so we had to kind of fill that void of like, hey, I want to get people something to drink, but I don't want to bring alcohol into the scene. And so, um, th- again, those necessities and those needs that we saw that were just like, how do we feel that? We use our creativity to say, hey, you know, we can create products that can fill those voids, right? We want to feed people. Let's cook them some dope-tasting weed food, right? Yeah. And cannabis-infused <laughs> food. And then the same thing with drinks. It's like, all right, I want to make sure that people can walk around and, and get drinks and feel good about the night. How can we do that? And so it was a, a hell of a process just getting to understanding dosage and how not yeah. knocking people out every time you just got them <laughs> together. Um, and, and again, man, that that kind of like study and, and um, kind of – maturing from like street knowledge to like real science uh really helped us kind of like take that creativity to another level what's your favorite thing to make Ooh, me personally uh gotta be the lemonade um uh, um it's it's just our it's our flagship product it's, uh-huh. it literally is like my baby you know it's like the first thing i really like dove heads in on like being a hundred percent um manufacturing of of that and so i understood the whole process from making all of the infused options that we you know infuse the beverage with um to finding the flavors you know i've named all the flavors we got five flavors we just introduced a sixth flavor um that is exclusively offered through um a retailer out on the res shout out to all our the res locations man they are set in tone as well about how things are moving are we as humans thc deficient I'm not sure I would describe myself that way, but are we as a whole? Yes. How so? Yes. So um, my theory is that if you just look back, and this is a shared theory, I kind of adopted this. Shout out to Dashita Dawson, um, the the weed head. She actually just got a dope position in New York City. She's the cannabis star. Yeah. Um, shout out to Dashita. Shout out to she's Dashita. Good yes, yes. Um, so she's like my big dog. So we would talk, and she made this really cool. Smart point, because she's really smart. <laughs> and she was like, you know, just think about all of the uh, diseases or the things that ail us as a society. It's all about imbalance. It's all about imbalance, right? High, uh, hypertension, or if it's diabetes, or if it's high blood pressure, or if it's cancer, right? These are all about imbalance. Something is overly there or something is deficient, right? And literally, cannabis by nature is a 
homeo is, creates homeostasis, mm-hmm. right? It's about balancing, right? It's if you're too high, you take a little cannabis to come down a little bit. If you're a little low, you take a cannabis with the right terpene profile that it can get you a little higher, right? And boost your energy, right? So it's about creating a balance. At one point, cannabis grew freely in the in the across the country right and the animals that we that we took in and we ate and processed used to eat that that uh that cannabis mm-hmm. right and so essentially we all used to take in a bit of of THC right cuz even if it was just hemp growing wild um which is hemp is the kind of CBD um filled cousin of yeah. of, of 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 marijuana that we know about smoking um, but even if it was hemp, it still had a level of THC that we were intaking. And then subsequently, if we ate that animal, it, we got a little bit of THC. And I think that that kind of is what ties in like the deficiency uh, of that. We got a few minutes left and I've, I've got two two more questions okay. for you. Um, what's your favorite strain? Oof. Gun to my head. I can't smoke anything else for the rest of my life. <laughs> it's sour diesel. Ah, it's just a grandma. It's just a, it's just a really good smoke, man. Always. I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Um, one another question I like to ask my guests. It's very broad, but you know, from your position, from where you're sitting, from where you're standing, what does Buffalo need? Oh man, Buffalo needs togetherness. Um, we just need to uh, combine the talent that's here. So much, so much talent here. So much skill here. So much um, energy for greatness that's here. And I think there needs to be something that unites our efforts. We need some kind of joint um, desire, whether that's just the upward motion of our communities, and we all can agree to that. Um, but in some way, some fashion, we need to kind of combine. Um, all of the talent that we have here. And what I think what can be a catalyst for that? Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's just a if that's a group or everybody join Can House. You know what I mean? <laughs> everybody become a member, and then when we meet, we can start to talk about the stuff when we get together. But honestly, that is about a power of of what, why we created this this group is to put like minded people together, and so that you can share ideas that start to allow you to work together. And I think you know. Starting on those small groups in those pockets and growing it out is, is probably the the best way to go about that than maybe just doing some grand project where everybody gets in because it's kind of too many hands in the pot at that time. Mm-hmm. So you're listening to Buffalo. What's next? Thomas O'Neill White here talking about the emerging weed business and weed in general <laughs> with Canna House founder and president Reggie Keith. Reggie, I want to thank you for being here with us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me, man. I, I really appreciate uh, you guys shining a light and giving this um, industry, you know, some well-deserved, you know, airtime and coverage, man. We need it, and um, thank, thank you for all you're doing, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm sure we'll have you back on, Anytime. you know, once once, once uh, things really get going within the state, we're going to have you back on. Anytime, man. You got you, you got me. Um, thank you to your listeners for uh, taking the time out to listen, man. And yeah, canadashhouse.com is where you can find the, find us on the web. Um, and follow our IG. It's the second underscore house. That was Thomas O'Neill White with Reggie Keefe. 
and we end today's summertime producers picks with Jay Moran speaking with filmmaker Terry Jones from September 1st. Terry is a uh, filmmaker and also he's going to be the curator, or is the curator I should say, of the Haudenosaunee uh, micro short film program that's coming up at the Birchfield Penny uh, this Saturday. Terry, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I want to hear about this because you're going to have, what, 14 different, and we're going to call these are micro short films, so less than five minutes, mm-hmm. all produced by Haudenosaunee artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last year, I was uh, asked by uh, two film festivals. One is Micromania Short Film or Micromania uh, Short Film or Micro Short Festival, and uh, Native Spirit in London, England. They had wanted to uh, do an indigenous part of their program, and uh, since uh, the Micromania Film Festival is based in Buffalo, they said, "Why don't we have Seneca?" And it turned out both of the directors of the film festivals knew me personally so they asked me to come in and curate um at first i thought it was going to be a little bit um of a i thought it was more administrative doing curating but then when they mentioned that uh we were that they were going to pay screening fees to the filmmakers i thought oh that's a great opportunity uh for me to come in and uh, i just put a, a posting on facebook and asked for submissions to the micromania short film festival or short film program and uh, i think i got a good response i got a, 12 films i took them all i, I didn't have to i didn't have to leave right any and out. then i think what uh, the, one of the, the sonic casino uh picked it up and uh, i actually brought it to to their facility as well right yeah so we we screened last year at the birchfield penny we had a great turnout uh yeah the ceo of the seneca niagara casino was there he came in uh it was it's the the program was i think that was 12 films over 35 minutes but it was sort of the way the film spoke to one another um i had i had also edited how the the screening order but it really found this uh unique way of like um having this journey um of all these different short films and when they saw it, it was really emotional for everybody and he says i want to bring that to the casino as part of their native heritage month in november so we um so yeah it was it was great they were able to um uh provide more funding uh especially to bring out of town uh, filmmakers in so it actually became uh, screened at the bears den mm. and uh had a great turnout there as well so then we're we're doing it again this year as well. Now, I want to get in a little more about the themes that we're going to be uh, hearing and seeing on, on Saturday, but I also want to just give a quick plug out to Lu- Lucia Costello. Uh, couldn't be here because she's uh, feeling a little under the weather, but is she uh, is the one who is bringing the Micromania Film Fest to uh, Buffalo and with a, a lot of different sessions coming up in the coming weeks. If you want to find out more, you can go to sparksfilmmakers.org. But we're with uh, Terry Jones right now, and Terry, uh, these films that we're going to see on Saturday are there what are some of the themes I wouldn't say necessarily is there one theme or two themes but what mm-hmm. are some of the themes that emerge because a lot of this is what self-representation that's the idea that we want these filmmakers to put together something that says something about themselves or shows what the you know the what they are feeling and expressing mm-hmm. um, one of the things that when I was um, when I started to curate this program was that I wanted the casual viewer to be able to come in. I know they would already come in with their preconceived notion of what a native film Well, we've seen in other films for a hundred years, right? Exactly. And what I wanted to do here was to have a wide array of Haudenosaunee filmmakers and film uh, filmmaking styles which included uh, narrative, experimental, documentary, dance, animation. Um, And that's uh, that's sort of what what we got. Um, And this year's uh, 
program. Uh, there's well, my my personal film that I included is called Savage Future. Uh, it's uh, an experimental film where I use uh, Ir- I shook Iroquois white corn uh, as a soundscape and slowed it down, and then I just created very simple images of uh, my own personal family's um, experience with uh, the Thomas Indian School or the residential schools and um, on a micro level and then the story makes it go macro and I bring it back to micro um, and there's another film in in the um, the slate that's a, a trailer for a longer film called Remaining Native uh, uh, I think she's a Six Nations filmmaker uh, Paige Bethman and there too is a theme of uh, Indian residential schools so I thought those those two would would play really well together. Uh, another big um, thing that I love really like this year is that we um, have four youth films uh, made by uh, Haudenosaunee youth. Uh, one is a one is from a 12 year old Seneca who did a 30 second animation. I was blown away by how hmm. how um, I wouldn't even be able to do, right. do that sort of animation. Um, Another one is um, was created uh, during the summer of a theater camp that I was an instructor on. Uh, to the to the participants wanted to make a short film. Uh, it's a it's called Massa Cookie Massacre. It's about a. It is it's a it's a comedy horror film. Uh, they came up with complete with the idea. I brought in. I was more their mentor. Uh, I helped them with the with the logistics of it. Um, but in in the end result, um, I liked the film so much that I actually programmed it that in with uh, with the program that's going to be um, shown at the Birchfield. Um, another one I think is a longer form. I'm not really sure uh, what what the exactly it is. It's a trailer, but it was uh, one of the participants who has a film here, Paulette Moore. Uh, she had conducted a media workshop over the summer in Six Nations uh, Reserve, and there, too, they made a long-form film, but they um, included a trailer that we're going to show as well. It's interesting to to hear, like, for example, you have experience in in making films, Mm -hmm. but not everybody necessarily is all that experienced that are putting together these micro-short films. Is that part of of the concept that we want to try to see what other people can do and how they can express themselves? Yeah, um, one of the the good things as well with this program is that when we're able, the filmmakers are able to come to the screening. Uh, a lot of times, these are just done in our own like our own laboratories on right. and where we're from. Uh, we have the concept with the idea. We find the way to to tell the story. Uh, sometimes the, you know, you might not have like a Hollywood style glossy uh, product in the end, but good storytelling. You don't sometimes you don't need that. Sometimes uh, the the DIY uh, format. Works works really well. Um, but there are a fair amount of these uh, projects are really uh, top-notch. Uh, a few of them feel amateurish, but but that's okay. That's part of the process. The idea is, is to amplify not just um, established filmmakers like myself, but emerging filmmakers, especially youth filmmaking, um, that when we're when we're all in the same room we're able to say wow i you know um, we we all learn and inspire from from one another and not only that but we also include the uh the the general audience to take part as well which includes our own community but also our neighbors you know the buffalo community to allow them to come in and and learn something new especially in a space where we weren't necessarily really included or invited into like the birchfield penny it's so really grateful for them for providing the space because uh, 
um, we wouldn't I wouldn't know where to where I would be able to have that sort of uh, uh, built-in audience right. community artist community to come support the program and I guess then to take that then do we see I mean you, you've got experience do we see an emerging sense of this artistry coming from Haudenosaunee or indigenous people I mean is that so I mean it we, we're hearing a little more conversation but are, are you actually seeing it um I, I do. Um, but like I said, sometimes for me, it's we're, we're dealing with people's notion of what a native film feels like. So to in order to dispel that, it's not um, it's not presenting these uh, stories, these very unique personal stories in a way that we feel people need to see it. They do it. They It's a form of self-expression that just is. So then when we invite someone to come and look at it, they're like, well, I didn't know that. Um, you know, the a story is a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Hopefully, it has themes or characters that are universal, and we all do. We, when I when I think of storytelling as an indigenous, um, what makes us doesn't make us any special. We we all want the same thing. We want to take care of an environment. We want to take care of the kids. We want to take care of who's here. We want to plan for the future. We want to take care of our elders, and that's a, that. And we want to you know respect one another and respect the environment. And, and that's pretty universal that anybody can uh, anybody can identify with. So with these sort of uh, film projects, hopefully they'll go in and say, I understand that even though they're indigenous, I, I right. understand their, I understand that story. I can relate to that story. Obviously, if you're talking about the residential schools, I mean, I mean that's just, there's just such a history of, of pain. And, um, and again, things I think that the general public just still finding out about. But what about in terms of, are there, do you sense hope coming out of these? Or do you see that type of thing inside the, the artistry again? that you're seeing out of these micro short films. Yeah, uh, especially when it comes to something like Indian residential schools, it's um, it, for me, it's uh, it's entertaining, uh, but it's also educating at the same time. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just blanking out. Yeah, but do, do, is there but is there a, a, a sense of hope, I guess is what I'm saying, that that this is on the road to something better? Yes. Yeah. Um, for me, when I when I tell these um, I call them sometimes difficult stories. Um, history is is history. It's it's in the past, but we can learn from history. We're, we're, you know, that that whole thing where we're bound to repeat history unless we learn from from our past. Um, for me, my my particular piece called Savage Future. It's 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 a deep subject. It's a dark subject. It can be a dark subject, but um, I've I've heard people who've watched it and they they feel like there's a sense of hope in for it. So for me, it's a sense of me uh, being able to express this uh, this difficult history to uh, uh, to a casual viewer, but at the same time, in the end, uh, hopefully they'll they'll walk away with a sense that um, uh, as I said, it's we're we're universal. That was Jay Moran with filmmaker Terry Jones. The fifth annual Spark Micro Short Film Festival is taking place in September. For more information, visit the website sparksfilmmakers.org. And that will do it for today's Summertime Producers Picks episode. We would like to thank our guests, Stan Martin, Ebony White, Reggie Keith, and Terry Jones. If you missed anything you'd like to hear it again, a reminder that this program is a podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts or the new Amplified BTPM app. And each episode is available online, on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is Charles Gilbert. Thanks for listening.
My name is Damon Fordham, and over the last 20 years, I've gone through libraries, archives, old museums, and interviews with the elderly to get the stories that have been seldom told elsewhere, and I've collected them into four books, a newspaper column, a radio show, a YouTube channel, travels around the country, uh, courses that I teach, and this tour called If These Streets Could Talk, The Lost Stories of Black Charleston. One of the things that's not often discussed with this is the status of free blacks. Now in those days, in order to be free, you had to have what was called manumission papers. And there was nothing stopping anybody in those days from going, oh, are these your manumission papers? Oops, silly me, and selling that person back into slavery, okay? Plus, you didn't have vote to the right to vote, nor any real constitutional rights until the 14th Amendment in 1868. And even if you went to the North, it wasn't a haven of freedom because you could easily go have somebody uh, recapture you or accuse you of being a runaway and sell you back into slavery. The most famous case of that is Solomon Northup, who wrote a book about his experiences called uh, 12 Years a Slave that became a popular movie 10 years ago. And there were many states such as Illinois that didn't want free black people at all because the residents were told that the presence of free blacks would make them work, they would work cheap and take their jobs. Sound familiar? Hello. Now, however, you did have cases of free blacks who were educated and were entrepreneurs. One such person was Nat Fuller, who in this building, prior to the Civil War, owned a restaurant called the Bachelor's Retreat. This is where the well-to-do white men of Charleston would come after work and smoke cigars and drink brandy and enjoy his fine cuisine. The Confederacy fell in Charleston on February the 18th, 1865 when a black Union regiment, the Massachusetts 55th, marched through here, and the Confederates surrendered. And they left here for about a year and a half. So during that time, the only white people left here were the Unionists. That is, the white people who supported Abraham Lincoln in the Union. So Nat Fuller was so moved by this that in this building in April of 1865, he threw what was called the Dinner of Reconciliation, also known as Nat Fuller's Feast. This is the first known recorded case below the Mason-Dixon line where blacks and whites broke bread at the same tables in a public restaurant. And after the dinner, Nat Fuller was so moved that he raised his glass in a toast to Lincoln and to Liberty. And on the 150th anniversary of this in 2015, 150 or so Charlestonians of both races were invited here for the commemoration of that dinner. And at the end of the dinner, they all raised their glasses in a toast to Lincoln and to Liberty and among the guests that night was yours truly. <laughs> this is historic Broad Street, where most of our historical buildings are located, and, with, and most of them have some really interesting history to it. The black building behind us, the number 91, that was the very first black-owned law firm in the United States. The first black lawyer in America was Macon B. Allen, who was born a free man in Indiana in 1816. And in the 1830s, as a young man, he went to Maine. And during his time in Maine, he studied for and got his law license. So he practiced law in Boston in 1845. In 1868, three years after the fall of slavery and the end of the Confederacy and the rise of Reconstruction, he came down here and started his law practice in that building with two black Charlestonian lawyers, Robert Brown Elliott and William J. Whipper. 
Robert Brown Elliott made history in 1871, where against the fears of his wife, he testified against the brutality of the Ku Klux Klan before Congress. And so that testimony so moved President Ulysses S. Grant that President Grant signed the Enforcement Act of 1871 that made domestic terrorism a federal offense. So every act of domestic terrorism that has been to our court system since then has, from the Ku Klux Klan up through the people who bombed and burned ROTC buildings during the Vietnam War era up to the events of January the 6th, all of these have been prosecuted under the Enforcement Act of 1871, and we owe all that to Robert Brown Elliott, who practiced law in that building until the fall of Reconstruction in 1877. Afterwards, he went to New Orleans, where he died of tuberculosis in 1884 at the age of 42.